Okay, this is a shameful time in many ways in Israel's history. The people do what is right in their own eyes um, very quickly, um, and we fall into, um, they lose blessings that God had promised them, and they fall into a very, in sort of a destructive, repetitive cycle, and we'll get into all that. But anyway, starting in Judges 1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquire of God, who shall go up first for us? against the Canaanites to fight them. Remember that the conquest of the land was not complete. There were still pockets of pagan people that dwelled there. Remember how we talked about that last week? There's actually a list of them that hadn't been driven out yet. But God said, go ahead, divide up the land, settle the land, and I will finish driving out those people. So the land was partitioned. So there's still pockets of, of, of other peoples within Israel's land and God wants them driven out. Israel, up until this point, there's always been a person, one person, okay? It was passed down, Moses, and, and it's passed down. There's always been a person. And so the Israelites inquire, who's going to be the next person? God answers that Judah will go, and God has given the land into his hand. Judah and his brother Simeon, um, they fight, and in their territories, they conquer the rest of the land allotted to them. Um, they take captive um, a king whose name is Bezek. This is very interesting. They take him captive, and they subject him to sort of an unusual punishment. They remove his thumbs and his big toes. But apparently, this was a common practice in that time because the king says, after he'd been captured, this, the king says, 70 kings with their big thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem. So apparently this was a common practice in the era because this king who had subjected, you know, it's um, kind of like a trophy, right? You conquer a king, you take his kingdom, you kill his army, you take him. And who, what, he who was great is now picking up scraps from your table. You know what I mean? He's a, he's a disfigured servant, you know. Um, but they subject him to that punishment. Also, speaking of Jerusalem, it is at this time that um, the men of Judah actually conquered Jerusalem, which, of course, is in the south of the Promised Land. Um, Jerusalem, obviously, will be a very important city throughout the rest of our um, study of Israel, but um, from this, this is the first time they've conquered it. Um, so God is still assisting Israel. They are still driving out the remnants of the other peoples among them. But something begins to go wrong. About what, halfway through the first chapter of Judges, we see a change, and the people of Israel begin to fail to drive out those remaining inhabitants of the land. It seemed to happen in many places, chapter 1, 27 through the end. Um, many people in many different areas of Israel do not do what God has commanded them to do. Um, I just read to you um, some of Moses' words from Deuteronomy where he talked about driving out the remaining people and it has not been done. 
And then we have a very, a very sad occurrence here. Um, the angel of the Lord appears in response to Israel's disobedience. This is in Judges 2. The angel of the Lord said, you weren't supposed to make covenants with these people. You weren't supposed to leave them. But you have. You have not obeyed my voice. And so, verse 3 of chapter 2, the angel of the Lord, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And the people mourn, they weep. But this is pretty significant, right? There's still unconquered people in and around the Israelites, and because the Israelites fail in holding up their end of God's that they fail in holding up God's commandment, God communicates with them and says, I'm not going to drive these people out anymore. They're going to be here. They're going to stay here, and they're going to be a thorn in your side, and their gods are going to be a problem for you. And it's not like the Israelites at this point have the greatest track record with um, pagan gods anyway, but now it's going to be immeasurably worse because the people that are there and their gods will remain. Um, so this is, this is a large change that is kind of a sign of how the rest of the book is going, the way the, the, way the rest of the era of the Judges moves. Um, and we see another um, sort of an interesting um, failure here that is a stepping block for um, the, the state we see Israel entering. Um, despite, and I was going to, there's, I listed some places there for you. Several times Israel has already been commanded to Teach your children about God. Pass these things down. Hold to them tightly. Past, uh, Pastor Jeremy actually read one of the verses that I had um, for that this morning. But Israel has failed to pass this down. How do we know that? Well, Judges 2.10. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So despite God saying, teach your children, pass this down. Remember when you crossed the Jordan, we picked up the stones? That's going to be a monument. When your kids ask about it, what does that mean? You tell them God delivered you here. Israel has failed at this, and the new generation, the generation who got to see the conquest, who saw some of God's miracles, the generation who was closer to that wilderness wandering and, and the exodus have passed away, and the new generation does not know God. How many generations does it take for a nation to become faithless? Not a trick question. What do you guys think? One. Why is that? When we don't know our own history, in the same sense that the Israelis or the whoever they were, uh, the Jews didn't weren't aware of their history, which is pretty weird because I mean a lot of that stuff was just happening like in their parents' time practically. It seems to drop away rather quickly, does not? Yeah, does not? it does. It does. I mean, um, it, it, yeah, children can't sort of reason their way back to this. 
Um, and it just it is a major failure, and it's not something that they weren't commanded to do. They were specifically commanded to do it, but they have not. Let's not forget, it was only just a little bit earlier in Joshua when the people answered Joshua. This is in Joshua 1.16. All that you have commanded us, we will do, and what wherever you send us, we will go. This is right before entering the promised land. Just as we have obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Remember that? Um, only may the Lord your God be with us as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded him, shall be put to death. It wasn't that long ago Israel as a whole is making some pretty bold proclamations about like God and his word. It'd be like, we're going to obey what you say. As a matter of fact, anyone who doesn't obey anything that you say from God is dead. Well, it's... A very short time later, we get to Judges 2.11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. So this is one of the reasons it was so important when they were faithless about conquering the land and God is like, I'm going to leave people here that you're going to have to deal with, whose gods are going to be a problem for you. That's exactly the way it turned out. And it happened very quickly, within a generation, it seems. And now the people are, they have left God, God who has brought them so far, who has fulfilled so many promises he has made, who has kept them safe through wilderness wanderings and battles and sea crossings and things that defy the imagination. And very quickly, evil, evil is now rampant in the land. They abandon God. They're worshiping pagan gods. Um, that's not that unfamiliar to us, though, is it really? Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. That's not really that far off. That is a condition we ought to at least be able to identify with. We live in a land of relativism and people doing what's right in their own eyes. This is the state of Israel at this time. And, and here's where I want, like I said, we're going to enter kind of a cycle. Here's the point where I want you guys, to, I'm going to talk about this just for a second so that you can have it in your mind so um, you'll notice it and, and identify it as it comes past. This is the beginning of a cycle we're going to see repeated um, throughout the next 14 chapters of the Judges. If you deconstruct the cycle, there's, just, there's five motifs that we see recurring. Israel falls into sin. Israel is subsequently oppressed by their enemies. Israel cries out to God. God raises up a judge to deliver them. And Israel then experiences a time of peace. And then it is rinse and repeat. We see this happen several times throughout the book. Just have that in your mind because as these judges rise and fall, we're going to, in general, be following that cycle here. Um, there's a nice summary of it in Judges 16, if you want to read it, but it just talks about how, how this happens again and again. And so, because the people have abandoned the commandment of the Lord, God's anger burns against them. And in response... God gives them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia for eight years. So they are 
servants. They are afflicted. They're in very, very bad shape. They're in terrible distress. Um, the people cry out. Because remember now, we don't have, there's not Moses anymore. Um, we don't have Joshua anymore. They've passed away. Um, but they cry out to the Lord, deliver us from this oppression, from this pain, from this violence. Um, and the Lord raises up a deliverer, the first of the judges, Caleb's younger brother. Um, his name's Othniel. He defeats the Mesopotamian king, and the land of Israel then has rest for 40 years. So we see the first completion of that cycle. The evil, the outcry, God sending a judge. We see the first cycle spin through. Um, yes, question. God sells them. God, part one under Othniel. Yes. In response, God sells them into mm -hmm. the hand of Cushan Risham Theum, the mm -hmm. king. What does that mean, sells them? I don't get it. I, I grappled with that a little bit. Um, it comes from the from my from the ESV translation, um, Judges eight uh, three eight, I believe it was. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia. So I I, I haven't done a word study on it. Um, that would be very interesting. I, but I think it's just a picture, if nothing less. It is a picture of the fact that they've been given over to this king and he's making them do what they want to do. They're not sovereign in their own land anymore. He is imposing his will upon God's people because God has removed his protection from them. So it just I took that out of that translation. Um, but no, I haven't done a word study on it. Um, <clears throat> but we do. We see that happen as the first cycle. And then it happens again. The people of Israel again do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthens a pagan king, Elgin, Eglon, excuse me, who's the king of the Moabites. And he gathers a, a, a sort of a coalition to himself. Um, so now we see God actively strengthening an enemy of Israel to use as a, as a form of judgment against them. He defeats the Israelites and takes possession of the city of the Palms and the Israelites have to serve him for 18 years. This is the second time this has happened. Um, the Israelites again cry out, and the Lord, Lord raises up Ehud, a left-handed Benjamite. This is a rather interesting story. Um, I won't go into graphic detail, but it's an interesting story. Ehud forges a sword, and he's left-handed. He conceals. It's a short sword. He conceals it by strapping it um, to his thigh. Um, and Ehud comes before the king, presents him a tribute. I mean, you know, if you want to look not suspicious, if you want to, you know, that's a nice way to start, you know, bring the king a tribute. And then, because curiosity is rather insidious, Ehud tells the king, or he passes, passes a word to him, that he has a secret message for him. Well, anyone who's ever wondered what a secret was, and you know, if you're a king and you're a little paranoid about keeping your position, um, that would be something you'd want to hear. But basically, it gets, and this is the part that's is amazing, it gets Ehud a private audience with the king, King Eglon, in his upper chamber, you might say, uh, in the upper in the chamber, and 
he comes to him and he says, he approaches him and Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. And he stabs the king and he kills him, loses his sword in the process. We won't go into any more detail than that. But, um, and then, if that wasn't a humiliating enough way to leave planet Earth, he shuts the door behind him and leaves. And he escapes. Why? Because the king's servants do not want to go into the king because they believe he may be relieving himself. And some things you don't want to interrupt a king doing. So they wait, and he escapes. And Ehud gathers the Israelites, he sounds the trumpet, um, and he leads the people of God into battle against the Moabites. And the Moabites, now without their king, are defeated, and about 10,000 Moabites die that day in battle. The land now has rest for 80 years. So that's the second time we see this cycle come through. And, you know, God raises up this judge. And some, and some important things to note that we'll talk about um, the judges. This is a shameful time in Israel's history. Um, there's, there's lawlessness, and the people are just bent on doing evil. About the only time they acknowledge God or reach out for him is when they're actively suffering under the hand of someone else. Um, what's the nature of the deliverance that God provides through these judges? God provides them a deliverance, but what's the deliverance like? What is it? What is it not? Yes, Al. It always seems short-lived. Yes. It, it always seems... It is not a permanent deliverance, that's right. No, it always seems more just from their immediate oppression. Mm -hmm. It doesn't last very long. Um, it just keeps repeating itself over and over again. Yes. I think, I think we could definitely say it's a temporary, a temporary deliverance. Um, God is not permanently rescuing them from the hands of these other peoples. And, and it is not a deliverance that, oh, sorry, question. I was just going to say the other side of that is it, it doesn't appear to be a, if, if it's a temporary deliverance mm -hmm. from God, it's also a temporary uh, reliance on him from the people mm -hmm. because as soon as they're delivered, they go back to their evil ways. As soon as things get better, we're right back to where we started. Yeah, it so. seems like it's a, it's just a, a get us out of trouble, mm -hmm. save us, and then leave us alone for a while again. I agree. I, I think that's a good point. Um, it, Bridget. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder how many of these people are actually true believers and how many of them are just following, you know, the masses of God's people. And, like, how much more would we be in that situation if we didn't have the Holy Spirit helping us along and keeping us on track? Amen to so that. So just thinking, like, I don't know, maybe a majority of these people aren't even believers, so that's why they're all falling off the course again. It, it seems to be. It it. it because again, they go back. The instant they're out of pain, they go straight back. It, it doesn't seem to, it's not a deliverance in the sense that their hearts are turned away from these idols and turned toward God. It's not a permanent deliverance. And it has to be said, some, some of the judges, judges are very interesting, but some of them personally 
um, in many ways are shameful people. Okay, so, so it's not like God has, you know, raised up these paradigms of righteousness and, you know, and, and, and they're perfect moral examples. And it, no, not at all. Um, it may not have been the deliverers that Israel was asking for, but it might be said that at this time, these were the deliverers they deserved, okay? It was just enough to get them by. Yes, Greg. Well, I think what, one thing this points out is our natural state uh, is not to be dependent upon God. Our natural state is to be a rebellion, rebellious and, and uh, self-seeking people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was true of them, and they are us. Uh, that's true of us as well. And so if we're not, if we're not uh, diligently seeking to be the kind of people God wants us to be, mm-hmm. we will resort to our natural state, which is being rebellious and evil in all that we do and think. I agree. It is our natural state. You might say that we're seeing Israel more in their natural state right now than we have at any time during our story so far because we're seeing them completely. um, They only care about God when it hurts and God, please make it stop hurting. And, you know, once it's over, it's like they move on. Um, so just just an interesting point to ma- be made about the, the these these judges and the, the, the kind of deliverance it is. Um, I was listening to a sermon, part of a sermon the other day. Um, we're talking about everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, and it was John Piper, and he said that um, because when you think about everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, you can connect that with sort of today's like relativism, right? And John Piper connected that and said, you know. Relativism leads to anarchy. Everyone's doing their own thing and there's no connection. Everyone's seeking after their own interests. And he said there's only two fixes for that. One is revival and the other is basically despotism, you know, tyranny. And it's kind of funny because here's where we're we're heading down the short road towards Israel having a king who is a despot, but, I mean, is informed... um, by the by god's law at least that's the way it's supposed to be but again it's just interesting we're heading down that road and the chaos created by everyone doing their own thing you know israel as we'll see very soon probably next week will demand a king and will get one despite many warnings given by the prophet so anyway the next uh the next um judge pops up here shamgar um it's a short short story um he saves israel he kills 600 philistines with an ox goad Yikes! I mean, just I, I don't want to I don't want to dwell on a mental image of what that must have looked like, but I I don't know I don't know. We do what we do know from the Old Testament is that when God decides you're going to be overthrown, it happens. Whether stones rain from the heavens or the ground opens up and swallows you, so you know. And then we get to um, an interesting um, an interesting story, the story of Deborah. Um, unique in some ways among the judges the people again do what's evil in the side of in the eyes of the lord and um the god gives them over into the king of canaan's hands his name is sisera uh, excuse me that is not the king's name sisera is the name of the commander of the king's army and it's a very technologically advanced army he has 900 iron chariots at the time you know this would have been whatever was was the best military te- technology available. 
makes them a very, very difficult opponent. And the Israelites are oppressed for 20 years, and of course they cry out to God. And God commands a man named Barak to gather 10,000 men from a few of the tribes of Israel and to take them to a place where God will bring out this enemy and give them into their hands. But Barak doesn't take action until a prophetess named Deborah, who had been judging um, Israel, basically called him out on it. I mean, Judges 4, verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinanam, from Kadesh Nephali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people? And goes on here. And down and brave, brave Barak, in verse 8, Barak says to her, I will go if you will go with me. I will go, but not if you will not go with me. I will not go. And she said, this is Deborah, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Basically, it's Deborah saying, like, you shouldn't need me to make you do this. Hasn't God already told you to do this and what he's going to do and that he's going to deliver these people into your hands? And Barak wouldn't go unless Deborah went with him. And she basically said, well, you're not going to get any glory for this, but yeah, I'll go with you. You know, if that's what it takes to get you to obey God, I'll go with you. Um, so it does happen. Deborah's urging. Barak moves Israel out, gives battle. The Canaanites are defeated. And their commander, Sisera, flees on foot. And here's we, we meet another famous biblical character, Jael the wife of Hebor the Canite, invites the fleeing military leader, the commander of the army, Sisera, into her tent. And if you read a little deeper, you'll see that her husband um, was of a group that sort of had some sympathetic leanings toward, um, the <clears throat> toward the Canaanite king. So... When she talked to him, she said, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he enters her tent. She feeds him, she gives him milk, she covers him with a rug, and says, you know, stand guard, he goes to sleep. That's not the way it turns out. She then kills Sisera, this is Jael, by driving a tent peg through his skull and into the ground with a mallet. Again, that's a, an image that I don't want to pause on, but again, the commander of the army now dead. Israel continues on and destroys the king of Canaan, resulting in 40 years of rest for the land. So again, when God decides he's going to, God, God raises up these leaders, he sometimes strengthens them when, they, when, they, when he's judging Israel for their unfaithfulness, but when God is, when God turns the tables and decides to judge these men, there's nowhere they can go to get away. I and mean, literally, he thought he was in a safe place. He thought he'd found a sympathetic person who was hiding, who was well-fed and covered, and, and just escaped the battle and ended up dead in a grotesque sort of way. So we have 40 years of rest again for the land. And Jake, then we get to... Jake? Um, Jake? Yes, uh, question. 
uh, we I need to interrupt here to say yes. that that this is a central figure of the figure of the Bible, and and you've called her Jael. I think it's Yael, Yael. and our esteemed pastor has named one of his children after this this delightful individual. You're talking to the guy who couldn't tell the difference between Rahab and Rehab, so I, you know I will call that my own shortcoming. And um, Yael, I'm sorry, She's probably not old enough to know that, but. In any case, yes, um, she definitely managed to get her name written down, and no one was ever going to forget her. <laughs> so <laughs> that gets us to Gideon. Um, and it's our last figure for the day, um, but it's kind of a, um, it's a longer, it's one of the longer stories regarding the judges. The Israelites again do what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and this time it's the Midianites who oppressed the Israelites for seven years. It's so bad that the Israelites are literally hiding in caves. Um, the Midianites, um, something rather interesting, they ravage the land and they take the food. It says there are numerous people, have a lot of camels, and, and they will come through the land and take all the food, leaving the Israelites in a terrible place. Um, obviously, the Israelites again... Apparently, these cycles were just, these cycles of judgment were just long enough that the Israelites forgot that, oh yes, this happened before because they keep falling into the same cycle. But anyway, they cry out to God and um, the angel of the Lord calls a man named Gideon. Um, and Gideon, he's a man who likes his signs. He's a man who likes God to show him in a physical way that he is doing what he's supposed to be doing and that God is, in fact, using him. Um, so, he, so he asks for a sign to, receive, to confirm his calling. He does. And then Gideon builds an altar to, the God, to God. Now, this, this is interesting because this deals with sort of a family dynamic. At God's command, Gideon tears down the altar and the Asherah of his father, how bad has it gotten? You know, Israelites and their family members, you know, have built altars to these gods. Now, it's interesting. He does it at night because, I mean, you know, we've all got dads and sometimes you're afraid of dad. I mean, he does what God wants him to do. He does it at night. He tears down, tears down these altars. And the next day when the men, find, the men of the, 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 the area find out what has happened, um, they seek to kill Gideon, which shows you just how serious the Israelites are about their worship of these pagan gods. Um, Gideon's father, Joash, strikes a sort of interesting line here. He defends his son and insists that Baal should be able to contend for himself if he is actually a god. It was interesting. I don't know. Was, that's just a father trying to spare his son, or but it was an interesting sort of, it reminds me of some of the, the, the trials among the prophets we'll have later in this story where basically they're just like, well, you call on your God and I'll call on mine. See who answers first. He basically says if Baal's real, you know, he can stand, you know, he can contend for himself. So anyways, father manages to save Gideon. Gideon sounds a trumpet and sends messengers to the Israelites. And after yet another sign, Gideon moves out with a force of over 30,000 men 
Remember, it's the Midianites that are oppressing Israel at this time. And at God's command, Gideon is forced to twice reduce his force until there's only 300 men left. This is interesting. This reminds me a little bit about Israel, but earlier in the story, where God would deliver you, but not by the way you were thinking, and would make you do everything the wrong way, and you're marching into the land, and nobody would start a military conquest this way. But that's exactly what God wanted him to do. It's exactly what Gideon does. And remember, they're fa- for, they're, they are facing a large, large encampment of the enemy with only 300 men now. They've sent most of their men home. Gideon approaches the, this very large enemy camp, and he overhears a soldier recounting a dream. And the soldier's comrade who he's with interprets it as God giving the camp into Gideon's hand. So Gideon's like, ah, well, that's a sign. So, so I'm going to attack, right? But there's specific instructions. They don't attack in a conventional sense. The 300 men approach the enemy in the middle of the night, the middle watch, um, with trumpets and with torches concealed under jars. And then they blow their trumpets, they break the jars, it rouses and frightens the enemy, and God acts on their behalf. God causes the enemies to flee and to attack each other. Their swords turned against each other. So this is another one of those miraculous deliverances whereby the people obey what God has told them to do, and God does the rest. And God scatters and drives away this much larger force, um, giving all the camp into Gideon's hand. And This takes care of the problem for the moment of the Midianites, but then we get into some other less savory details about Gideon. He does refuse a request to rule over the Israelites. The Israelites tried to make him a ruler over them, and he he declined that. Um, But instead, he requests golden earrings, like from the spoils they've taken in battle. They put a cloak down, and people are just like, well, I mean, we'll pay you, you know, you deserve something for delivering us from this horrible oppression. And, and Gideon uses this large amount of gold he's, he has collected and turns it into a golden ephod. Do you know what an ephod is? Everyone know what that is? Yeah, like a, like a vest, you know. But um, the ephod becomes a snare to Gideon's family, and Israel whores after it. So... So here we have this, this man who just acted in faith towards, towards um, God's commandment, who God used to deliver them from, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Midianites and give them 40 years of rest. But then we find out, like I said, this is why I wanted you to kind of have this in mind about the judges. They are not, in many ways, they're very imperfect and sinful um, because he uses this personal um, payment that he's been given for his role to create something beautiful that ends up being an object of worship and that is bad, you know, it becomes a snare to his family. So it becomes a, a, an heirloom, but not in the good way. Um, also, perhaps even less flattering, Gideon has multiple wives and 70 sons. Gideon is not... Gideon is not, um, he's not perfect. And on top of that, as those 70 sons weren't enough, he has a concubine. 
and his concubine bears him a son named Abimelech. Well, time goes on, and Abimelech, who, remember, is not one of the 70 sons. He's, he's a, a son, but via a concubine. So you might say, sort of like an illegitimate son. And remember, Gideon refused a right to rule over Israel. He was very powerful. He had just performed this great deed. Israel, he could have been a ruler in Israel. He didn't want to be. Well, Abimelech, he doesn't have any of those qualms. He's not worried about that one bit. He'd like to be the ruler by any means necessary. And he makes a, a play to become the ruler. Abimelech um, travels to his mother's relatives at Shechem and speaks with the leaders and, and, and his family and his relatives speak with the leaders on his behalf and they give money to Abimelech. And what does he use it for? He hires what I guess we might call thugs to aid him in his quest to become a ruler. He then goes to his father's house and kills all 70 sons. This is a, you know, sometimes we see stories like this in medieval history because royal succession is such a big deal. There can only be one king. There may be many sons, but there's only one king. This is this this is a war of succession in a way, but on a on a supersized scale. He kills all 70 of the sons. But he has a little brother, Jotham, who conceals himself and manages to survive. And in a very interesting move, because remember, they tried to make Gideon a ruler. The leaders of Shechem, remember, connected to his mother's family, they, sort, they make Abimelech a king. Not king over all Israel, but a king of that region. God has not ordained this. He hasn't said this is what is supposed to happen. This is the leaders saying, maybe we should just have someone permanently in charge over us. And this seems like the guy. He's certainly very ambitious. Anybody who'd kill that many people to take the throne must be ambitious. Um, and they make him king. And Jotham, remember, his little brother who survived the purge, um, Jotham goes to the people and sort of proclaims a curse on them. He says, if you've acted in good faith and integrity, rejoice in Abimelech. But if not, and I'm in Judges 9 right now, let fire come out, come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. And skipping down, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and devour Abimelech. So we have, this, we have this judge who delivered Israel who had all these sons and his illegitimate son or son by a concubine kills all the rest in order to take power and his little brother tells the people in Shechem, huh, this, you know, if you've acted in integrity, it's going to be fine, but if not, you guys are going to devour each other. And that is exactly what has happened? Abimelech has a, a, what you might call a reign of three years. And God, who again did not ordain him as a king, sends an evil spirit between him and the leaders of Shechem. Remember the same leaders that kind of helped him become king? God's not, God is not um, impressed by this, and he sends this evil spirit. So now, 
They were allies. Now they become enemies. They fight. They deal treacherously with each other. They try to ambush each other. This is the king now and his his men um, fighting against local leaders. Um, Many people are killed. And um, Abimelech also uh, destroys the tower of Shechem. So remember the guy you fought so hard to make king over you, even though no one told you to do that. Now he's king over you, and what's happening? He's fighting against you and destroying your cities. You don't, it, it is sort of a, a final consequence of playing fast and loose with uh, what God has commanded them to do. And they got what they wanted. Abimelech was king, and Abimelech got what he wanted. He got to be king, but in the end, they destroy each other. As Abimelech is fighting against the people and captures the city of Thebes, a woman from a besieged tower throws a millstone, of all things, and crushes his skull. Um, and Abimelech's last thoughts in this world are he doesn't want to die by a woman's hand. Apparently he knew that a woman was the one who'd thrown the stone down on him. And he commands his armor bearer, to kill him, which he does so with a sword. So God, you might say, returns the evil of both Abimelech and the men of Shechem. They sort of devour each other, you might say. And that's, it's just, it's a little subset of a story. I know it's kind of long, but I wanted to throw that out there just to show you the kind of stuff that's happening in Israel right now. Israelites are literally fighting each other. They're trying to make kings where God has not ordained them. and, and we find ourselves stuck in this cycle of the judges. But again, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes until they're being actively judged. And then they want just enough deliverance from God to make the pain go away, and then it goes back. But we are moving down a road, and we'll get there next week. Because of this, Israel will get what they want. They'll get a king. And we will also... Um, that, that's going to change some of the stuff about our story, the rise of the monarchy. We're also going to start seeing the rise of the prophets. We won't go into prophecy proper, but I would like you guys to know what prophets were operating at what time in Israel's history. And I've got some charts I'm going to print off for you guys because sometimes since the Old Testament is not all written strictly chronologically, that might help with that. Who was king, what prophets were active, where we are in the story, and what books in the Bible are covering it. But we will have a king. We will finish up the judges now that we've kind of got an idea what this time in Israel's history is like, and it's not a great one. Um, We will move towards the monarchy. We will see the first king next week, which is a total game changer, obviously. Um, Well, the first, let's call it the first legitimate king um, next week, and um, we'll move on from there. Questions or thoughts about the judges? Carol. Just a couple of, of things that come to mind. One of them you just alluded to, but I'm thinking by way of application, this is what um, this whole thing you've gone through with uh, treachery and murder and all sorts of disgusting stuff happening. Uh, this is what happens when a people do what's right in their own eyes uh, without a moral code to follow. Apply that however you want. In these no, I, I agree. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking was, you know, Pastor Jeremy had uh, one of the cross-references here was Jeremiah 29. And uh, the exiles are in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, 
verse 10, when 70 years are completed, I'll visit you and fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. And then our favorite, everybody's favorite verse, for I know the plans I have for you, says yeah. the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come to me and cry to, and pray to me and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I was just thinking all throughout here, even though it's short lived, mm-hmm. people sought after God when things got really bad. And, and I, I feel that's true in my own life, you know. No, when, it, that's a I, great point, Carol, because on the one hand, again, this was written for our instruction. When do you hit your knees the fastest when things are bad? And also, thank God that he is so merciful. Because remember, any point in this story, God could have been like, I'm pulling the plug on this. You know, done. I'm not saving you again. But he does not. As, as wicked as they are, he keeps delivering them just enough to get them through, to get them by. And like you said, it, it's, it's a time of... And again, I went into some extra detail here, but I just wanted you guys to have a picture of how treacherous this time is, of how divided Israel is, of how leaderless they are. And like you said, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, leading to all this evil. But no, that's a, that's a great point. Any other thoughts? The, yes, Zach. I was trying to remember if you were if you talked about it last week or not, but um, like, what would have been the the ideal situation as far as like now that Joshua's gone, like there's no apparent like one right. leader to take over. So what was like, or does it even say like what the kind well, of what was God's I, plan? I think for that time? I think I can answer in as much as what what um, the commandments they were given. The ideal would be if they had kept the law they'd been given by Moses. Now, Moses, before he even died, you know, talked about how they wouldn't be able to do that. But um, the ideal is obviously to keep God's law. And at this point, they have a very um, large law. They have the priests, you know, the sacrificial system. So at this point, you know, I think the the best perhaps that could have been hoped for was that they would hold fast to God's word, that they would, um, that the priests would do their job faithfully, that the people would teach their children and pass these things down. Um, I think, you know, as I can only answer as far as that that's what had been commanded of them um, up until this point. So I guess that would have been the ideal. That's just an answer off the top of my head. Um, yeah, that just kind of popped something into my head of like, it's almost like today, like there is no leader of the church you know if you're in the catholic church and you think the pope is the leader but like mm. if you're not if you're protestant you don't think that there's like one leader of the right. church in the world and right so it's more like all of these individual churches with their pastors mm. and elders and um mm. it's a lot more i don't know kind of spread out yeah. and not the same kind of hierarchy as like a king and that kind it's of true. thing but so it's it's true. almost seems like that's what that was supposed they, to yeah, be yeah and israel is very fragmented and that evil and that chaos is driving them sort of inexorably toward wanting what you talked about a leader one leader um and once we get a king that'll be very interesting like i said kind of a fun dynamic to explore israel obviously changes when it becomes a kingdom and has a king um and of course a large part of our study will be studying the lives of the kings because that's a good way to you know to track the progress of the nation um but uh yeah that that's where we're headed so um looking forward to it guys any other questions thoughts anything else i messed up in the notes <laughs> no no rehab rehab stuff this week hopefully 
Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Wanda. Well, just refresh me. Okay, Gideon, was he being disobedient in not becoming a leader? Did God just want him? Did he want him to be the leader or not? It's not recorded that he had that imperative from God. Okay. Um, because um, when Israel actually um, gets a king, is anointed by a prophet from God. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll meet those characters later. But I just mean that there's, there's specific instruction that God gives to the king. There's an anointing process whereby God's, you know, a legitimate king ordained by God. And I, it's, just, it's not recorded that that was ever given to Gideon. So in that sense, it seems he actually made the right choice by turning it down. Um, but he was so powerful that even though he declined to rule, his sons instantly begin to, you know, to scrap for a position to try and fill that vacuum of power at the time. But it's not recorded that, you know, Gideon had that imperative from God. So Okay. And you said the ephod was a vest. Okay. What was the thing that they wore that was supposed to give them power? The priests. Was that not what that was called? Yeah, there's, there's like a breastplate. And if the you, same and if, thing, kind of? Yeah. Yeah. And if you look back, if you go back through um, um, the detailed descriptions of the priestly garments, theirs had, had um, fine stones on them to represent mm -hmm. the 12 tribes. Mm -hmm. um, but but again, one of them gave him God's, told him what God said to do. Am I yeah, remembering see, that they're, wrong? They're very ornate. You have to go back and read the whole description. Okay. There's very specific, mm -hmm. um, this is exactly what they're supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. um, and they are bejeweled and that sort of thing. This was nothing like that. This was... Um, Give me some of the spoils in, in you know, okay. in reward for my service, and I'm going to melt it into something and make something really beautiful, and then my family is going to stumble over it for a long time, and it's going to become an object that causes a lot of people a lot of trouble. So okay. it was nothing like that. It was a, okay. you might say it was a selfish, self-centered sort of. Okay. I mean, we see we see what it brought, and it was nothing good either for his family or for the Israelites around it. Okay. Thank you. So. It's purely speculative. We don't know this, but his son, you know, his sons could have been fighting over it. I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? You see what I mean? We don't know. But it's not, it's not, but yeah, it's like a vest, kind of. 